Peter talks this week in this passage about struggling. And I have used this illustration before, and I will probably use it again because I think it is a very illuminating illustration about struggle and suffering. And that illustration is the one about the, the cocoon. And a cocoon holds the moth until the moth is ready to break out. Now, the, the process of breaking out of the cocoon, as I understand it, is a very tedious one, a very difficult one, and the moth will struggle and strain and struggle and strain and struggle and strain to get itself out of that cocoon. Well, the story is told, and preachers retell it all the time, of the, um, a little child who saw this struggle occurring and decided to pull the cocoon apart for the moth so that the moth would have an easier escape. The problem is that that action by that child caused the moth not to escape, but to die. The moth was ill-equipped to live outside the cocoon because the moth had not gone through the process of escaping the cocoon, the process of strengthening itself for the outside world, that the cocoon, part of the cocoon's design is that it is made so that the moth has to struggle in order to get out. And it is only if the moth does that struggling that it is able to live outside that cocoon. Now, in, a wor in the world today, we have a lot of people who really believe that the main goal of life is to avoid struggle, to avoid pain, to avoid any kind of trials. And I've read many articles about uh, how detrimental it is that so many parents are choosing to keep their child from all potential harm, all disappointment, all sense of failure, and in so doing, it's like they're clipping their wings because they're not allowing them to become strengthened in their early lives to be able to deal with life later. Uh, we, we, as a society, I think we really want to believe that struggle and suffering is, it should not be part of life, but it is. And that's why Peter says here, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Do not be surprised by struggle and suffering. It is inevitable. And that's my first point, that struggling and suffering are inevitable. A lot of people think that it's God's job to keep them from struggling. When a trial or struggle comes into their lives, they blame God. They get angry with God. They say, if you don't take this away, I can't believe in you. Because they believe in a God, a false God, whose job it is to make them happy in this life. But that is not the biblical God's job. The biblical God's job is to promise us life in eternity where everything will be made right, everything will be good, but now, now we suffer. Jesus said, in this world you will have struggles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, he ultimately wins the battle against sickness, against suffering, against struggle, against all of these things, but right now we are still in this world and we anticipate when his kingdom will return in its fullness. But in the meantime, we must know that struggling will happen. I've heard so many times people say to me, 
Well, God just wants me to be happy. I'm sure that God wants me to be happy. And they tell me that when they are excusing behavior that scripture says is not right. And they tell me that when they excuse decisions that they know will cost them something. That they know would, if, if they make this decision, they will be honoring God, but they will be losing something. And if you can maintain this belief that God's job is to make you happy by your standard, then you will be able to put aside a lot of what the Bible says. But remember, that's not the real God. The real God uses suffering and uses struggle in order to remake you, in order to strengthen you, in order to make you ready for the life beyond this life, and even ready for a faithful life in this life. Peter says, don't be surprised by struggling because struggling is inevitable. Don't be surprised by suffering because suffering is inevitable. And I think so many times people are more upset by their surprise or more uh, off-put by the surprise about suffering than they are about the actual struggle. If we didn't think that life would be easy, then when trials come, we wouldn't be so overwhelmed. We would know, well, this is part of life, and this is how I handle this trial. But if we think that trials are not right, we, we ask questions all, why did this happen? What's wrong? What did I do wrong? Why is everything so bad for me? When the answer is, it's bad for everybody sometimes, and struggles come. Now, struggles are not only inevitable, but they are beneficial. The word that is translated here in verse 12 as fire, the fiery ordeal, that word is purosis, which means purify. The purifying process. Don't be surprised at the purifying process. Don't be surprised that you that there's still work to be done on you to make you faithful for the kingdom and to make you ready for the glory that God seeks to reveal in and to you. Now, I love verse 15. You know, we, are, we know that suffering is inevitable. We know that God can use suffering. But Peter makes sure we understand that our suffering shouldn't be because we murder people. Our suffering shouldn't be because we steal from people. Our suffering shouldn't be because we're criminals of whatever sort. Uh, that, that kind of suffering is different. That's something we bring on ourselves. But the, the struggling that, that reforms us, that changes us, that equips us to be faithful to God is suffering that comes from outside. And it's interesting, you noticed, don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief or a criminal or even a meddler. I love that. Peter's saying, you know, you might think you're fine because you haven't murdered anyone and you haven't uh, stolen anything and you haven't um, been accused or acquitted of a crime, but don't struggle, don't suffer because you're a meddler. In other words, don't 
make people mad because you're a jerk, because you're pointing the finger at them and criticizing them in the name of the kingdom of God. Because we have seen some people that think that the job of a Christian is to point fingers at the rest of the world and in some sort of self-righteous, self-justifying way, think everyone else is wrong and we're not. That, my friends, is not the gospel. And if you think it is, you're sorely mistaken. Because the gospel says that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner. The gospel says that it is not because we are so good that God has redeemed us. It's because we have acknowledged that we're sinners. We have acknowledged that we are in need of God's grace, and we have received that grace. And when you tell the gospel as if it is uh, all criticism of how people are and how they better get their act together, you're missing the point of grace. Grace says you don't have your act together. Grace says you need love and mercy in spite of your actions. Or even you need grace because of your actions. That's what being a Christian is. So folks, don't struggle and don't think uh, it's so great that people uh, are upset with you because you're pointing everything wrong out about them. That's not what we're called to do. But we will experience suffering as God works on us. Anyone who's raised a child uh, has probably experienced that moment when they hear those words, I hate you. Because the child doesn't understand what the parent understands. The child doesn't understand what, what the parent knows they need. And in order for them to get to where they need to be, they have to do things they don't like. It's the same for us. We don't understand what God is doing. And some people rail against God and say, I hate you because you've made me go through this or that. But we don't understand. We don't understand how God can use whatever trials come to strengthen us. Anyone who's been on an athletic team or even in the marching band like I was, appreciates a coach or a director who makes it hard for us. We don't appreciate it at the time, but when we look back, we say, that guy really helped me because he didn't let me get away with a half-hearted commitment. And he made me a better person. And coaches that are revered are coaches that make the team work. Now, there are coaches that are jerks and just make you work to be mean. That's not what we're talking about. But the coach that really understands what it takes and will put you through the paces in order to get you to get the team to a place where you can do your best, that's a good coach. Our God is a good coach. Our God allows us to struggle. Our God allows us to deal with things that ultimately make us better. And as we allow God to work, we become more faithful. We become more useful for the kingdom of God. Now, too many of us are like a patient on the operating table who hasn't been put to sleep, and we're squirming and trying to get off that table, and the surgeon says, I can't do any work on you if you keep moving around. And if I try, it's going to mess you up even more. 
But a sur so a surgeon needs someone who is going to let them work. And more often than not, they get help from the anesthetist in order to make the person ready for them to work on them. Now, I'm not saying we need to be uh, put to sleep in order to be faithful for the kingdom. Uh, by far the opposite of that is true, but we need to submit to God's work. We need to yield to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. This word, purosis, and again in verse 12, the fiery ordeal, purosis, purify. It is said that um, a silversmith uh, purifying the silver, so putting it over the fire and allowing the impurities to be separated off from the pure silver, knows that it is at the right place, that it is purified when he can see his face reflected or she can see her face reflected in that silver. And that's the way it is for us as we become more purified through the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, our countenance reflects the countenance of God. Our hearts reflect the heart of God. To be pure, purified, is to become more and more like God in how we think, in how we feel, and in how we act. Struggle strengthens your walk with God in that, and, and we, we experienced this very strongly at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, and we talked about it. Many people had conversations about all the things we had to give up, all the things that we relied on for a sense of self, a sense of entertainment, whatever it might be, that we could not we could no longer do, and now it's been many, many days that we have not been able to do those things, and there has been a purification process that was part of that, especially if we cooperate with that purification process. We see the things that really don't satisfy, that we thought did, and those are stripped away, and then we have opportunity to truly look again at God and allow ourselves to be molded more and more into God's image, more and more into realizing that God is the answer for the desires of our hearts and not these other things. So, And there are other struggles that do something similar to this, and there also are chosen uh, things that help that to happen, like fasting and prayer. When we, we give something up in fasting, we're saying, I don't want this to rule my life. I want to Focus in on God. And if you have something in your life that is that has become more important than it should be, I encourage you, put that aside. It's, it's a decision to sacrifice, to suffer a bit for your ultimate good. And it's glorious when we gain victory over those things. Finally, the sufferers, the strugglers, win. Verse 14. If you're insulted... No, I'm sorry. Verse 13. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
who celebrates the most when their team wins? Is it the fans in the stands? <laughs> they celebrate a lot, that's for sure. But are they celebrating more than anyone else? I would say those who celebrate the most are the players on the field. Because it is truly much more their victory than it is the victory of those in the stands. Now, there may be players that messed up and they're not able to enjoy the victory as much because they don't feel like they're really part of the win. And it isn't necessarily the player that made the winning touchdown or, or made the best plays in the game that's the happiest. It's anyone who feels like they participated in the game and contributed to this win. So when Peter says, rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, what he's saying is, be in the game. Be in the game. Do what it takes to honor Christ, to reorient your life around the kingdom of God, do the work of the kingdom of God, and then when the ultimate victory is declared, you're part of the team. You rejoice. You rejoice because you have been faithful and because you are part of the victory. And just to take it a little bit farther, if a player was choosing between two schools, two football programs, and chose one, and invested in that team, and that team won over the other team, that player may even have greater sense of elation, of happiness, of joy in the victory. And I say that just because in verse 19, it says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And the word commit there means invest. That player had a choice to make. On which program, in which program am I going to invest? And then when they win that game, they realize I invested in the right place. And when we share in the inevitable, inevitable victory of Jesus Christ, we will know that we invested in the right place. And if we've participated in the struggle and in the trial and in whatever it takes to be faithful, we will share in the victory as those most joyful. I encourage us to do that.